Good evening, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the National Library of Australia. I'm Cathy Pilgrim, Assistant Director General of the Executive and Public Programs at the National Library. As we begin tonight, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land that we are privileged to call home. It's wonderful to see so many of you here for our first event presented in partnership this year with the Canberra Writers' Festival and with the Canadian High Commission. Tonight's speaker is Canadian short story writer and novelist Madeleine Tien. It gives me great pleasure, first off, however, to invite the Deputy High Commissioner of Canada, Mr Charles Reeves, to start our evening. Welcome, Charles. Thank you so much. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, bonsoir, madame and monsieur. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting on the land of the Ngunnawal people and give my respect to their elders past and present. Uh, second, I'd like to say thank you to everyone for faring the Canberra rain and making it all the way to the library on such a treacherous, rainy evening. Uh, compared to Ottawa standards, you'd be about waist deep in snow right now. Uh, so the, the, the rain's a welcome change to any time of year. Um, it's my pleasure to welcome you to this public talk with Canadian author Madeleine Tien. Uh, when I heard that Madeleine was coming to South Australia this year, I was really excited to see if we could get her here to Canberra. We wanted to share this fabulous and talented Montreal-based author who won last year's Giller Prize, the most prestigious literary award in Canada. Madeline won the Giller for her latest novel, Do Not Say We Have Nothing, which will be the focus of tonight's talk. The novel, which explores the far-reaching effects of China's revolutionary history through the stories of two musical families, also won the Governor General's Literary Award for Fiction and was shortlisted for the 2016 Man Booker Prize. Madeline's books and stories have been translated into more than 20 languages. As many of you know, this year is Canada's 150th anniversary of Confederation, and to celebrate, we are working with arts festivals across Australia to showcase Canadian talent, fabulous talent like Madeline, and I'm so pleased that she's able to join us tonight. Canada's strength is in its diversity, and it's wonderful to see an appetite for Canadian talent on the world stage, and especially uh, an appetite for talent here in Canberra. I encourage all of you to follow our Canada Down Under Facebook page and our Twitter account, where we will be posting photos from tonight's event. It's also a good way to keep up to date with Canada 150 events that, we plan that we're planning for Canberra and across Australia. Uh, one of those events will be a free film night at the National Film and Sound Archive on April 19th. We'll be joining with Canadian high commissions and embassies across the globe to screen Canadian films on what we're calling Canadian Film Day. Here in Canberra, we'll be showing the award-winning 32 short films about Glenn Gould. I'd like to thank the Canberra Writers' Festival and the National Library of Australia for co-presenting tonight's talk. In particular, I would like to especially thank Vicki Cotter and Ellen Harvey from the Canberra Writers' Festival. I'd also like to thank the Adelaide Festival for helping to arrange Madeline's visit to Canberra. Now, I would like to introduce Dr. Paul Hetherington, Associate Professor, Professor of Writing at the University of Canberra. Dr. Hetherington has been a central figure in the literary life of Canberra over many years and is a widely published poet. Thank you once again. Merci beaucoup. Bonne soirée. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. And now, over to Madeline and Dr. Heaven. Thank you. Hello, can everybody hear me? Yeah? Uh, okay. 
Um, well, to look, today we've got the opportunity of chatting to Madeleine about her latest uh, novel, which um, is, for those of you who may not have read it, it's really wonderful. Uh, and the questions that um, I'll be asking and that the, the conversation we'll be having will be partly around what this book is and, and what has inspired it. And um, we're going to range fairly widely, I hope. Before we get underway, uh, I just wanted to mention that um, Madeline has written a number of other books, uh, Simple Recipes, which won the City of Vancouver Book Award, and some other prizes as well. A novel, Certainty, uh, which is also a prize-winning book, uh, and a novel, Dogs at the Perimeter, which was uh, also a winner of significant awards and, and a finalist in a, in a couple of important uh, awards internationally. So uh, this book, Do Not Say We Have Nothing, is uh, the last instalment in a journey, uh, which has also seen her write a, a children's book as well, a journey through various issues around immigration, travel, identity and so on. And we'll pick up some of those issues as we go. As a way into uh, introducing the uh, discussion, I'd like to invite Madeline to read for a few minutes from this book uh, so that you, we can get into the, the spirit of it and hear the wonderful voice that informs it. Madeline. Thank you, Paul. Um, uh, first, I just want to say what a, what a pleasure it is to be here. Thank you so much for hosting me, and thank you for coming out in the rain, which uh, I have brought f specially from Vancouver. <laughs> um, okay, do not say we have nothing. I'm just going to read briefly, maybe three or four minutes. Um, it's 1940s. It's a village called Bingpai in China. A young man has been sent abroad to study in the United States. He comes back. He has loads and loads of books. He's given a nickname, Old West. And he dies too soon, but he leaves a little girl named Little West. Little West grew up terrified of her father's books, as if they held a disease that could destroy a village. Little West packed the books into a container and buried the lot of them. Her only son, born long after she had given up hope of a child, was the apple of her eye, and she hoped he would grow up to be a proper landlord like his great uncles. Instead, the boy lost his head to poetry. The boy was a walking cartload of books. He sat at his desk, calligraphy brush in hand, gazing up at the ceiling as if waiting for words to swallow him. His bedroom appeared to float, disconnected, above the solid world of transactions, commerce, and land. She called him sometimes gently, sometimes roughly, when the dreamer. He was an observant and sensitive teenager, and when the war came, it broke him. In 1949, when the fighting ended, Little West sent him to Shanghai, hoping it would restore his vigor. Books made all his pockets heavy. When acquaintances met him on the road, Wen said he couldn't stop to discuss the communists or the nationalists, Stalin, Truman, or the weather, because he was composing a six-character, eight-line, regulated verse in his head, and any variation in his path would push the words out of order. It was a lie. In fact, he was empty of poetry 
and afraid of words. During the war, Bing Pai had been ravaged by the worst famine in a century, but he himself had never known hunger. He had sat in his study, memorizing ancient and modern verses, while outside, laborers ate nothing but tree bark, mothers sold their children, and young boys died horrifying deaths on the front lines. Half the village of Bing Pai starved to death, but the gentry, inheritors of seemingly limitless resources, survived. Now the Shanghai literati were talking about a new kind of poetry, a revolutionary literature worthy of a reborn nation, and the idea of it both moved and troubled him. Could the avant-garde express the ideas that went unspoken? Could it confront the hypocrisy of lives like theirs? He did not know. When his poems came back from one of the revolutionary journals, a thick brush had scrawled across the page, excellent calligraphy, but your poems still sleep in their pastoral prison. Moon this, wind that, and who cares about your bloody grandfather? Wake up. He knew they were right. Wen kept the rejection letter and threw the poems away. He remembered Bertolt Brecht. I would also like to be wise. In the old books, it says what wisdom is, to shun the strife of the world and to live out your brief time without fear. All this I cannot do. By chance, he wandered into the New World Tea House. A young woman was singing, and when the dreamer, perplexed and enchanted, listened to her for five straight hours, afterwards he wanted to speak to her to commend the harsh beauty of her music, but with what words? The young woman's music contained poetry and the written word, and yet it traveled far beyond them to a realm, a silence he had believed inexpressible. Wen wanted to call out to her, but instead he watched her disappear alone up a flight of stairs. Nothing had shifted. The world was still the same. And yet, walking home, Wen felt as if his life had snapped in two. He stood for a long time looking at the muddy, sleepless river, which in the darkness was only a sound, trying to understand what had changed. It's a, a lovely uh, passage, a few pages to hear, and uh, that that lovely s lyrical voice that's in the book uh, is characteristic of so much of the writing in the 460 or so pages. Uh, and look, uh, in terms of um, thinking about how you created uh, such wonderful prose, uh, you said in an interview with Jade Colbert about your previous novel, Dogs at the Perimeter, uh, you were asked whether you were one of those writers who seemed to find out what the book is through the writing, and you said that you were. Was that a similar process in terms of writing this book? Uh, can you talk about how it came into focus for you? Mm -hmm. um, when I had finished the book that I was talking about in that interview, it's a book called Dogs at the Perimeter, and it's a, a very thin, slender novel, a very fragmented novel about the Cambodian genocide. And it was a book that had taken me five years, and is a, it was a, just a very painful book to write and also to, to bring into the world. And when I got to the end of that process, I just felt exhausted. And also I felt that I had lost faith in language in some ways. I felt there was so much that I wanted to express that was lost between the spaces of the book. And 
then I was listening to a lot of music. I was doing a lot of drawing. And I thought I wanted to write about, I wanted to keep thinking about the unresolved questions of that book, were, which were very much about revolution and aspiration mm. and the violent mechanisms of, rev of a revolution that wants to remake the world in a better way. And I thought I would write about the 1989 student demonstrations in Tiananmen Square in Beijing because they had affected me so greatly when I was a teenager and I think set a course for the way I was thinking about politics and art and expression. Um, so that that was where it started, but it became something entirely different. Yeah. So it was a, a kind of journey of discovery as you went. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of that difference, clarifying, um, did you did you have a, a key? Like, was it a character that you found, or was it a just a process of working through ideas? Yes. Um, the book starts with a 10-year-old girl yeah. and, an, and then a, a young woman comes into their lives. So the 10-year-old girl has lost her father. She's living with her mother. Um, she's in a, a, a kind of state of grieving without realizing she's grieving, really realizing it. And then, as in so many works of literature, a stranger comes to town. And this stranger is an 18-year-old girl named Ai Ming. And she is fleeing Beijing in the aftermath of the Tiananmen demonstrations. And the family shelters Ai Ming, who doesn't have the right papers, who doesn't have a passport, who doesn't have um, a way to make herself legal. Uh, and I think what had pushed me in that direction was a memory that I hadn't thought about in a long time. In the 1980s, when my mother sheltered a young woman, for different reasons, but a young woman who also had no papers and didn't have a path to citizenship and would eventually um, find that path in the United States where she couldn't find it in Canada. But I remember, because my parents were working all the time, they were sort of typical immigrant parents, So, but the woman who was being hidden, she was always at home because mm -hmm. she never left the apartment, her, her apartment, and which my mother had found for her. So after school, I would just go and stay with her. And it, it became this close, very special relationship. And, and I think for a child, it's hard to understand. There's this person in your life that you're not allowed to talk about, that you're not allowed to say their name. You don't really know what they're running from. Yeah. You don't even know why your parents are sheltering them. But, 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 but it becomes kind of a world inside a world. Yeah. And in, and in the novel, the relationship between those two young women is really part of a, a key to the broader mysteries of the novel, isn't it? Yes, she's so like a, a doorway. Kind of, they're trying to unlock the past together and also unlock what they know of one another as well, aren't they? Yes, yeah. and it's all sort of done almost in subterfuge because the older girl's telling the younger girl the story, but the story, turn, which seems so mythical at the beginning, turns out to actually be the story of their two fathers. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Mm. Um, on that note, um, given that you were born in Vancouver and to a Malaysian Chinese mother and a Hong Kong Chinese father, I think it is, um, does this novel in any way represent a coming to terms with your parents' pasts or your own <coughs> sense of yourself as a child? Mm -hmm. It's reversed. My father is Malaysian oh, okay. Chinese. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a novel, as we were talking about, it's a novel very different from my own family's history. Mm. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a really hard question in a way, because in a way you're always, um, as a novelist, it's hard to see what it is that you're working out in your, in your life that is being sort of re, uh, refed into the, uh, uh, the, the, the novel, which is actually kind of pulling things apart and rebuilding them together yeah. in a different way. And I had actually tried to write about my parents' story in my first novel, Certainty. And I would say it is not a very good novel. <laughs> it, for me, it's a failed novel. And in some ways, when I was young and writing it, I, I wanted to know so much more about my parents. And I wanted to understand things that seemed I couldn't or they wouldn't. They didn't want me to understand in some mm. sense. And I think that that novel is full of longing, but not not full of wisdom, you know? Mm. Uh, so I, I almost feel like the closer I try to f figure out that thing about my own belonging or theirs, the more it, it seems to slip away from me. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. It is interesting. I mean, there's so much in this book about things which are slipping away or hard to grab hold of, really. Mm -hmm. that's, that's interesting yes. indeed. Um, Speaking about family, uh, at the beginning of your novella, A Map of the City, which is an earlier work, one of your characters asks, does my family have any hold on me? And, that, you know, this one is so centred on family, and we're just talking a little bit about family now. What is it about families that so intrigues you as a writer? Mm -hmm. Big question. Mm. <laughs> Um, I think my family is, you know, it's particular, but it also maybe is typical in certain ways. Um, my parents speak different languages. My father, Hakka, and my mother, Cantonese. So our common language growing up was English. But it also meant that growing up, I didn't speak either of my parents' mother tongues. So there's this sort of distance in the family at the same time that there's an intimacy and also in my family, my siblings were all born in Malaysia, um, and I was born in Canada. So there was also this um, gap in some ways of citizenship and of, mm. of um, my sense of belonging in Canada ver versus theirs, which was always quite different. Um, and yet, despite all the things we couldn't understand about each other, and most because when my parents speak English, they're very different from how they speak their mother tongue. So my mother is extremely funny and irreverent in Cantonese, and she's very reserved in English. Yeah, so you almost see these different uh, facets of the same person. Um, so I it's that uh, familiar alien thing that is always kind of in the family that that moves me a lot. And I think when I was writing about Cambodia and China, it was very clear that the family unit was considered the greatest threat to um, the structures of a totalitarian state. So in Cambodia, for instance, it was your loyalty was not to be to your parents or your siblings or your loved ones. It was to be to the center, to the Khmer Rouge, to Ankar, and a very similar kind of mechanism, especially during the time of the Red Guards and the Cultural Revolution in China. Yeah. So, I mean, both those countries, 
revolution, the, the people de dedicated to revolution were trying to break down the familial and some of the other social institutions which they saw as preserving traditions and old ways of thinking and so on. Exactly, and maybe yeah. in some senses preserving a kind of hereditary wealth to, to, to some idea. Yeah. It, it preserves a class system yeah. also. and it, It's, I think both regimes, and I think this has happened in many places in the world and has happened in Canada, the breaking apart of families, it's an extraordinary tool of power because it separates the children from the parents. Y you take over the responsibility for their education. You mold the world. You shape the world around them. At the same time, in they, the children feel as if they have been abandoned. So, so it's a, it's a, it's a very violent um, seizure of loyalty. Mm. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. Um, well, on that note, and thinking about identity, um, one of your characters comments that what was misfortune, but the quality of existing as something or someone else mm -hmm. inside. And so, in terms of uh, some of these structures which are being challenged or broken or preserved or whatever it may be. This novel documents the necessity of people living double and sometimes dislocated lives, and often lives where their talents are only partly realised and expressed, and sometimes partly expressed earlier and then squashed later. So how much did th that, that issue drive your conception of this novel at the beginning? Because it's right through the book, you know, people who have got certain skills, abilities, talents, whatever they may be, and how those things are so frequently thwarted or frustrated or postponed. Yes. It, it emerged to me as mm. I was writing, and I think it was interesting thinking I was writing about 1989 and then realising that it was that to write about 1989 was also to write about a continuous cycle of history where certain aspirations were coming to the fore again and again and then being um, squandered or displaced in different directions. Yeah. Um, so when I realized that the moral center of the book is a, is a character named Sparrow, who's a composer, and that his life, his birth and life and death spans about 50 or 60 years of Chinese history. And then it, then suddenly, what you're talking about, the kinds of patterns, the, 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 the friction between the private self and the public self, especially as the revolutions become more pure, in a sense, as, as it becomes more and more necessary to speak the language of the revolution and to create art in service of the revolution and to love in service of the revolution, then that private self uh, gets distorted or silenced or thrown away um, and is possibly recuperated recuperated later, but in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting mm -hmm. indeed. Well, um, in terms of some of the preoccupations and some of the, t some of the particular talents that some of your characters have, there's a, there's a wonderful, um, the book is, is beautifully constructed. It's actually rather symphonic in, in some ways. And uh, music is a real preoccupation uh, of the, the book. Uh, and in fact, you wrote a children's book called The Children's Violin, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, which is, so music is there in 
your work. And your interest in dance also emerges in this book at various times. At key moments, characters dance or move in dance-like ways. Oh, I didn't know that, really? <laughs> that's, that's good. Yeah. That was totally I actually love that part of the book. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's I thought that was deliberate. <laughs> <laughs> and it's there, it's wonderful. But, you know, these, this linking of art forms, how important is that to you? Because I'll talk a bit more about written, you know, literature and so on in a minute, but, you know, these other art forms are there. They're either quite upfront in the book and haunting, or they're haunting the book in the background. That's beautiful, th that they're haunting the book. I think yeah. that's really true. Um, what, I, what I came to think a lot about was official Chinese history. So what it is possible to say about life under Mao, what it is possible to say about the Cultural Revolution, what is in the history books, what is in the, the narrative, the approved narrative. And then what happens to all that unofficial history? What happens to all those names? What happens to all those lives that were pulled from one part of the country and set down in another or completely obliterated? Um, and so the book became a way to, in a way, put those bits of unofficial history together. So there's a, a something called the Book of Records, which is a book within a book that gets passed from hand to hand. Then there's all the music that gets performed, and then also the music that doesn't get played, or that even doesn't get written. Um, and and it, it's sort of through the different art forms that together they construct that very fragile, very tenuous, always shifting unofficial history. Yeah. yeah. That's really interesting. So all the art forms, the, the cultural material that's being produced, written, performed, composed, whatever it may be, Altered, dance, copied. And altered. Yeah, yeah. That's almost like the, mem the, the private memory of yes. the, the world of the book, is it, in a way? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a shifting, uncertain memory at times, isn't it? Yes, because the language is, uh, the language is so codified. You know, the language is so strict. Yeah. How you talk about Chairman Mao, how you... Um, all the all the slogans that people have to use, and then under that is this much more um, unacceptable, um, questioning, contradictory, fearful, bold, yeah. everything underneath. And it. and some really true, deep things as well. Yes. Yeah, underneath. Yeah. Um, speaking about music, the compo composer J. S. Bach is given. A lot of attention in this book. It's, it's almost like a Bach's name and music is almost like a motif or a series of motifs running through the novel. And so I'd like you to say a little bit about the significance of Bach to this novel and particularly Glenn Gould's recordings of Bach's Goldberg variations because they're very famous recordings of those of that wonderful work. It's one of my favourite bits of music and I think a lot of people would share that sentiment. And Gould's uh, recordings are uh, kind of famous as, as performances of it. So Yes, that uh, 1955, Glenn Gould's first recording of yeah, the Goldberg yeah. Variations, it's actually the piece of music that NASA sent into outer space as a, a sort of artifact of what humanity had accomplished at different, different points. It is an exceptional piece of music. Um, when I was in that sort of in-between state before I'd started writing this book, I was walking in Berlin. I was very down. I was walking through a quite, you know, a very industrial area. And for, for one reason or another, I put on the Goldberg Variations. And 
It's about half an hour long. It starts with an aria, very, very simple aria, and it has a theme that's played by the left hand, so you don't even necessarily hear it. It doesn't, it doesn't come to the fore necessarily. And then for the next, it, it, it's then reworked into multiple variations, 30 variations in canons. And, but those variations go, f go from like profound sorrow to playfulness, joy, giddiness, in, in a whole range, a whole spectrum of emotions that we don't really have words for. And it, it, it tr you know, traverses all this distance, almost like a universe, and then it returns you to the same aria that you heard at the beginning, but you've been transformed along the way. Mm. So that was, um, and that's what it felt, that's how it felt to me when I listened to it on that particular day. And then, and then I had to work in a cafe because we had a very tiny apartment where my partner's also a writer and we both couldn't work at home. So I was going to a cafe, which I had never really done writing in a cafe before, so I needed to block, block out the sound and the distractions. So I put on the Goldberg Variations, and it just became my habit that I, as, soon as, I sit down, as soon as I sat down to work on this novel, I would start this piece of music playing, and it created its own soundscape, its own, its own reality, in a way, and its own sort of elasticity of time, you know, and... Mm -hmm. and um, and that structure, I think, seeped into the book. It, it, I think very much it is patterned on a theme and variations. And I, I think for the first time understood that I hadn't understood in the book about Cambodia that for the reader to come with me through sometimes very catastrophic events, I needed, to f I needed to pull apart the emotions so that we could have an ebb and flow, so that we could see, we could feel not not joy because we needed it at that point, but 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 really unexpected joy at particular moments, humor, comedy, um, yeah, and and sometimes un coming to those emotions when even when we weren't prepared for them. I think the mu I think that all came from the music. I I actually don't think I could have. Um, inhabited that structure through any other art form because it, it it was just sort of the music was repeating and repeating and it just takes takes root in you in some ways and it, even if I listen to it ten thousand times even when I put it on now I still hear the it still moves me to tears I mean it's really shocking that <laughs> a piece of art can do that but it it, it um, it's it's because there's so many variations and they're always in conversation. It, it's always constantly pulling out something new. Yeah. Yeah, it's a deathless piece, piece deathless, of music. And yes. Yeah, every time you listen to it, yes. it tells you something else, even though you think you know it absolutely yes. perfectly. So it's simple true. on the surface, yeah. Um, just very quickly, I mean, Shostakovich's uh, Fifth Symphony gets mentioned early in the book, and other composers are mentioned, Debussy and so on. Mm -hmm. And some of the material about the conservatory conservatorium um, is actually partly historically based mm -hmm. and some of the characters as well so you know this preoccupation with music and 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 I don't want to give it too too much away about what happens in the book but um, it's quite important you know the, the place of making music and individuals who make music and so on is that I mean, Bach's obviously really important, but what about the rest of these Western composers in a Chinese 
setting. Mm-hmm. Yes. It, um, this was one of the joys to write about because actually the, the history of Western classical music in China is so fascinating. And uh, the first piano, which was a clavichord, um, was brought into China by a Jesuit missionary named Matteo Ricci. And it's a beautiful story that he wanted to tempt the emperor into inviting him into the Forbidden City. And so he brings all these musical instruments and wonders and things, and the emperor accepts the gifts, doesn't accept for Matteo Ricci to come into the Forbidden Palace, but he sends eunuchs out to learn how to play the clavichord so that he can... (laughs) Um, But that's the beginning, and I think, especially in Shanghai, uh, Shanghai, for some years during the Second World War, you didn't need a passport to enter there, so it became a place, and perhaps earlier, it became a place um, where people sought refuge. So there were refugees from the Second World War, and prior to that there were refugees from the Russian Revolution. um, And the Jewish and the Russian refugees often made a living by teaching music. So uh, it has this fascinating history that also parallels what happens in Russia to the musicians. So Shostakovich, Prokofiev. Um, as they, they because they were denounced at different times in their careers, and they were told that they had to write music to serve the revolution, and and um, that the music couldn't be too abstract, um, uh, that it was creating a muddle in people's minds, and Prokofiev at, at a certain point just stopped creating. Shostakovich has a, a very moving line that I've always remembered when he was denounced publicly. Publicly, he just said, "I will try again and again." And when he, um, when the Fifth Symphony was performed, it was after he had been very severely criticized. You know, people around him had disappeared in the purges. Um, he, his life was very much in danger. Um, and he presented this piece of music that could be heard two ways. So the Russian authorities chose to hear it as an artist's criticism of himself and finding the correct path and the audience heard it as intense grief and sorrow for the losses of the purges. And that kind of di- dichotomy is possible with music because you just can't guarantee its meaning and you can't guarantee how a person is going to process it, which is also what makes it so dangerous. Mm. Um, literature, we can kind of generally agree on what it means or what it's saying what its intentions are. We, we can have that kind of conversation with music. Um, we're on much more shaky ground. Yeah. yeah, and it's therefore totally appropriate to a book where reality and rules and circumstances are so shifting and uncertain so much of the time. Yes. And do have a number of different ways of being read. Yes. Yeah, yes. it's true. Um, just in terms of texts, your, your characters are often searching for knowledge of others and and finding them in letters or fictional works. You've mentioned uh, that within this text there is another novel, which is the Book of Records, which is sort of like um, a, a never-finished sort of work, which is there sort of sitting within the book, and there's a beautiful idea and lovely conceit around which you create your own novel. And there are also poems by classical Chinese writers, including classical poets, 
What's the significance of this profusion of texts within your own text? Mm -hmm. Initially, I think the Book of Records, which is a novel the characters fall in love with. Um, we heard about when the dreamer, well, as when the dreamer tries to woo this singer that he's fallen in love with, he starts copying out a book that he's that he's he has in his possession, and he copies it out by hand, and he gives it to her. He he has it delivered to her door, chapter by chapter, and in this way wins her over. But what he doesn't realize when he started copying is that the book ends literally in mid sentence, and that he can't find the rest of it. Um, and then over the course of the novel, because this book is so beloved in the family, they begin to use the notebooks to send coded messages to each other because with the Chinese language, it's quite possible to just shift a word with the same sound and have a different meaning. Um, so initially, it was a way to hide uh, truthful events and truthful feelings that could not be expressed in the official public record. And the idea is that they're fictional characters, they're as intangible as ghosts, and therefore no state or no power has any hold on them. They're completely free. Yeah. yeah. That's a lovely idea. Yeah. Well, actually, that leads me um, perhaps to ask you something else, because more generally about fiction, what, what fiction can do, whether mm -hmm. it's the book of records or your novel or poetry or whatever it may be because the periods in China that you focus on in this book the so-called Great Leap Forward f which was 1958 to 62 and also the Chinese Cultural Revolution which happened not that long afterwards and then and during this period many many millions of Chinese died often from poverty or or for other reasons as well and then you've mentioned the Tiananmen Square event as well in 1989 so these periods and events have been written about by other people, you know, non-fiction accounts, j histories, journalistic accounts, whatever, um, eyewitness accounts. What do you think, but you're writing about them newly and differently and freshly, what do you think fiction, like this book, can do in addressing such historical periods and events that non-fiction can't do? Mm -hmm. The biggest question of all. <laughs> It's, in a way, I, I, I might try to answer it upside down in a way, Good, because yeah. I know what happened to me as I was writing yeah. it. Um, and it's, it was the intimacy with which these characters were living with me, and in which I, I began to understand how they could betray each other, or how they could um, silence themselves for many, many years and also how they could make, I, I don't know, even how they could. What I wanted to understand was, in 1989, you know, we all saw the students in Tiananmen Square, um, and we thought that when the, the tanks came in and the, the gunfire started, that the massacre was inside Tiananmen Square, and the Chinese government always said, no massacre in the square. And in fact, they were correct. There was no massacre in the square. The students were largely allowed to leave. But there was a massacre that happened on the roads leading to Tiananmen Square when all the 
um, ordinary Beijing people, workers, factory workers, parents, high school students, came into the streets to try to stop the tanks from reaching the students. And this is the majority of the deaths that has never really been fully understood um, because of that initial um, error. Mm. Um, and what I wanted to know was someone who is 50 years old, someone who has lived through an era that according to low estimates, took the lives of 60 million Chinese people unnecessarily. How does that person, who has been re remade in so many ways, find the courage to come out, out into the streets and face down the tanks? What is it about this particular moment, 1989, that caused such an extraordinary shift in people's psyches that having accepted things for so long, having having um, sacrificed so much for the revolution, of having accepted the official history that was given, what made them say, not anymore? Um, and that is, I think, psychologically, what the novel is trying to understand. Yeah, and so the, the intimate relationships of various kinds are mm -hmm. a kind of mapping of that kind of terrain, various yeah. different kinds of experience and ways of dealing with often great loss or sorrow or distance but finding ways to imagine yes and imagine a future they put it away sometimes for a long time and then it comes back when they least expect it it often yeah. happens in china at um funerals for um senior political figures if it's a political figure that people have loved or is it has been a reformer they will often use the funeral as a pretext to mourn the greater losses that have also been part of their lives yeah, okay, that's great. Mm -hmm. um, well, look, we, I'm conscious that um, you may want to have time to ask Madeleine some questions of your own. So I'll just um, wrap up by, uh, I suppose, Madeleine asking you, you know, you, you said in the acknowledgements at the back of this book um, that the novel was a book of records and an, an alternate, alternate memory of history. And you, I think you said why that might be. Um, but... What's, what's, in a sense, the more personal connection to that? Is there a, something that really motivates you to... Because, for example, your book about Cambodia is also about a book about very difficult circumstances, uh, genocide and so on. And uh, you're pursuing, I think, in a, a lot of your novels, a kind of exploration of uh, both loss and absence and those kinds of themes, and sometimes characters who are facing... Uh, kind of almost what seemed to be impossible, intractable kind of territory. Mm -hmm. What is it in terms of what you want to know that this is about? I, I actually think with the, with the last two books, it's, yeah. um, they've been, the, the, the drive has been in a way about my own relationship with my idealism, my own idealism. Yeah. And I know, uh, as a young person, I was extremely idealistic. I really, um, I think I, the kind of young person that would would welcome the chance to make sacrifices to make a better world. And I think that that is why, in some ways, looking at these two places, Cambodia and China, it is it is very much about looking at what it is about that aspiration that never quite um, disappears with each generation. 
and also why in, in sometimes the willingness to sacrifice so much for this just society, why we create some of the, why we enact some of the most grave injustices. It's sort of looking, at the, you know, um, Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities. Mm. He has a city called, called Berenice, and it's the just city that has at, in its seed the unjust city that is constantly growing and growing until it takes over. But within it is also the seed of the just city, which is also growing and growing and growing. And it's an endless sort of double helix. Mm -hmm. And why can't we, why can't we, you know, separate those things? Or is it the human condition um, that, that our goodness and our violence are so intertwined? So th this book, while it's to some extent about history, is also asking some very contemporary yeah. questions from your point of view? I think so, or it could be that that question that has never gone away. It yeah. did, it's suddenly more visibly contemporary at a certain moment in time, but was yeah. always there in the, in the background. Absolutely. Okay. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much. We're going to open uh, up for questions now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So very much both Madeline and Paul for sharing that conversation with us. I think as an audience we feel very privileged to have been part of that personal conversation that went on tonight. So thank you. So now it's, it's over to you. I'm sure our audience have lots of questions for Madeline tonight. We have a microphone on either side of the room. We ask that if you do have a question that you raise your hand and you do use the microphone so that everyone can hear your question. And we've got a few minutes. I think there's the lady just up the back here. Can we get the microphone, please? Thank you. And after that. Thank you, Madeline. Uh, I'd like to know which was your favourite character and what did you admire about them the most? <laughs> it's so hard to choose. I think, um, you know, my heart is with Sparrow, but in some ways my favourite is um, Big Mother Knife. Big Mother Knife is like this cranky... It's, she's, she's old when she's 15, you know? <laughs> and uh, I admired her... Her idea about the world remains consistent, in a sense, and that's an idea of the world that is not constricted, but um, cranky but forgiving, which is not a, a temperament that I have. Uh, yeah, I, I, I become more like Sparrow, so quiet and withdrawn, but Big Mother Knife never, never really turns her back on the world. Um. <laughs> Thanks for that conversation. It was uh, excellent. Um, you said when you finished your previous novel that you were emotionally kind of fraught at the end of it. And this is double-barreled question. How did you know you'd finished this one? Given that it's a voyage of discovery, I'm always intrigued as to how authors decide it's done. And then what emotion did you feel when you thought you had finished? 
I can't, I'm trying to remember the moment when I finished it for the first time. Because you know when you're, you do tend to finish it multiple times. Um, um, I remember the ending came upon me suddenly. And I remember thinking, I have carried them as far as I know how to carry them. And the ending is the beginning. And I've brought them full circle. Um, and then I knew it was finished. But which didn't mean that it's unresolved in it at the end. Yeah, there are, there are things that we do not learn for sure. <laughs> um, but that's how I knew that I had come come around again. Um, was there another question there? Uh, what emotion did you feel? Oh. Yeah, I felt thankful <laughs> <laughs> on all the levels, like thankful to be done. This, I mean, I only write 160-page books, and this one at that point was 500 pages. Um, but thankful to this book, thankful to these characters. It, it was like nothing I experienced as a writer before. I, I just felt they had opened up a whole world to me, which wasn't my world and was very much theirs. Madeline, I'm not sure if I understood or misheard, but yeah. early on in the conversation, at the very beginning, in fact, when you were speaking about um, what I understood to be um, something which occurs in totalitarian systems where there's a separation for the child or the individual from their family, from what's familiar, from what from what is intrinsic to them. And you mentioned also, as well as China and Cambodia, Canada. Mm -hmm. And I must say that caught me out. I can't imagine that in Canada. So I just wondered, did I hear it correctly? Oh, or yes. whether there's something in, in your experience or your understanding that you could share with us? Well, in Canada, it's the history of the residential schools. Um, and that was the government policy, was, was to take the children. And, and there's something else that's coming out now uh, called the 60s scoop in which children were taken for adoption and never never learned even that they were adopted or never knew about their their past. It's um, In Canada, there's been a lot. It's quite at the center of the conversation, especially here we are at 150 years. So it's it's a time, you know, to be, to celebrate, it really an extraordinary country, but also a time of, of reckoning, of really looking at how the country was founded and what we're still carrying from that history that is uh, left its levels of injustice in society. Um, so that is, uh, I mean, I think there, it's a, I don't, I won't say the number because I, I will get it wrong, but the, the number of children who disappeared or missing because they tried to run away. Uh, sorry, I get emotional. <laughs> um, and lost their lives uh, when they were trying to run away from the residential schools. Thank you. Thank you, um, Paul and Madeline. It's been a lovely conversation and pleasure listening to you. And my warmest congratulations, you've won so many awards, <laughs> it would have uh, destroyed a lesser talent. But <laughs> <laughs> I feel you, you have so many more novels Thank in you. you. I have two questions. One, in the last few years, 
the Nobel Prize for Literature has gone to, of course, uh, the Canadian short story writer, then a journalist, and this time a songwriter. Mm -hmm. I wonder how you see the novel developing in the future, say in the next five or ten years, what sort of people will get the uh, Nobel Prizes by writing certain kinds of books. <laughs> and my second question is, well, a lot of my friends from America are moving into Canada. Is there any possibility of persuading a very charming Prime Minister, Mr. Trudeau, to build a Chinese wall? <laughs> I think I haven't gone anywhere in Australia without um, someone mentioning Prime Minister Trudeau to me, I think <laughs> at least five or six times a day. It's, <laughs> it's, it's very, it's, I feel so proud, even though I don't know if I, I'm responsible. Like <laughs> uh, the Nobel Prize... I have to say that when Alice Munro won the Nobel Prize, I, she's such a, I'm such a, I, she's shaped my writing in so many ways. It, it's not obvious, in, in, but, but I've loved her writing such a long time that when the morning that she won, my partner woke me up. It was like five in the morning or four in the morning. He woke me up, and he, all he said was, she won. <laughs> and I just burst into tears. I was so happy, and I knew I immediately what it was. Um, yes. I suspect, and this is all just speculation, you know, like gossiping together, I suspect the Nobel Prize will get increasingly political um, just because of the times that we're living in. I think um, it, it's always been used just to signal something. And I'm sure the Dylan, the award to Dylan was meant to signal something that they felt needed to be said. So, yeah. A lot of people were really unhappy about that. But I, I don't, I, was, of all the things for me to be upset about, I just couldn't <laughs> summon. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you uh, very much indeed, because I think the book is also a gift, and, um, and reading it has just been joy, absolute sheer, unadulterated joy. But I'd like to ask you about... Um, I guess it's something Paul alluded to in terms of the cross-disciplinary nature of, of writing and your language. I thought I heard you say earlier that you didn't speak Hakka or Cantonese and yet I, one of the things that I loved was your calligraphy and your explanation of calligraphy and I'd love you to talk about that a little bit. Yes. Um in the novel, there are there's a use of Chinese ideograms, Chinese characters, and it's partly for Marie, who's only ten, uh, who's and who's lost her father. It's a way; f it's almost like a code that she both is drawn to, and that also pushes her away. It's what all the what she wants to understand, and which seems to have closed its doors to her. Um, so I also took Chinese lessons when I was a child. But I was very resistant. Um, maybe, again, probably not uncommon with children of immigrants. Sometimes you just want to fit in. And, um, and I, I felt such a ease, such ease with the English language that I, I was almost, I didn't want to be touched by the Chinese language. Um, and my mother always said, you're going to regret it. And she was completely right. Um, I, I, I try all the time now to learn. But, 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 but interestingly, uh, we learned Chinese calligraphy, even though we couldn't necessarily read what we were writing. We learned, we learned the art. Um, so I have all these bits and pieces of the culture 
and I don't, s I speak a bit of Cantonese, and but no Hakka, and I'd, s but I would say something about the, having been surrounded by the Chinese languages growing up, it, it, it does inflect my English in some way that I, uh, it's, it's subconscious to me. I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a cadence and rhythm and way that I speak that, that somehow has absorbed uh, something of the Chinese language. Welcome. I think there's time for one final question in the middle there. Thank you very much for um, the talk and uh, and for writing the book. And I have to honestly say I was um, I was moved to tears at, as many times during the book. Um, I th my question is a little related to the, to the last one. Um, I. You know, you, you mentioned the soundscape and, you know, you talked about the music in the book and, and now you're, you know, bringing in the Chinese uh, languages. Um, I'm just curious about your writing process because I can, I can hear, you know, Big Mother Knife is just, I mean, her voice, the timbre of voice, the tone, I can, I really hear it. And, um, and I just wonder with the other characters because you're rendering into English, into another language, all these various other inflections, mm -hmm. different dialects and the Chinese language. And I just wonder, when you're writing through, do you, do you hear the voices of all your characters? Do they all have distinctive voices? With this book, yes. It hasn't always happened before. Um, but I think in the time leading up to writing this one, I had been thinking a lot about um, the novel as a collision, uh, the, the novel as a, as a polyphonic work, as a polyphony, and that, that if you want to make multiple um, ways of experiencing the world come into contact, you really have to, uh, I was going to say democratize it in a way, but that's kind of what it is. It's a, you really have to, know when it's the character's voice and when it's yours and when you are um, actually closing off the character because you've surrounded it in your own voice. And so that actually is part of the, the art of writing is, is how, how do you hear this person's voice which, which is then going to carry their whole conceptual framework for how they experience the world. It's not just the little idioms of how they speak or, or little turns of phrase. It's actually something much deeper. It's about their, their angle on the world, their, their angle on reality. And then if, if you can find that language, then I don't know, some, some energy started to happen with all of them. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, we've run out of time this evening, but I'd like to thank again both Paul and Madeline. It's been a genuine delight to have you both here tonight and for us as an audience to listen to you. So please thank again Madeline and Paul. Thank you. Thank you.